you have your Bibles this morning, hopefully you brought your Bible with you. If not, there's one in the pew there in front of you, at least there should be. Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. As I said, we'll be uh, in the book of Isaiah all through December uh, together, uh, looking at the Christmas season. And Isaiah is a book filled with prophecy of Christ, of the coming Messiah. And so we want to look at uh, some of those areas in the book. Uh, Isaiah was written a long time before Christ, about 700 years before the birth of, of Jesus. <clears throat> and what we have in Isaiah is we have a, a divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and the people of Israel and Judah are not in good positions at all as we read through this book. Most of the kings uh, disobey God. They don't follow God. They, they turn away from him. There are some good kings uh, in that line, but most are not. And one of the kings that we will focus on this morning, or the king that we'll focus on this morning, Ahaz, is one of the bad kings, uh, to say the least. And so the background for this passage this morning, because this is a passage that you hear every Christmas, no doubt. Isaiah 9, especially verses 6 through 7, uh, which, I, which I already read this morning, but we'll, we'll look at again uh, in a little bit, is very popular at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And then we have those names, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But where does that come from? And what is the background for Isaiah then to prophesy that, for God to give that to Isaiah, to share with them, with the, with the people of Judah, but also for us this morning. And so the background is this. We have a king. This king is Ahaz. He is king of Judah. And as I said, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'd encourage you to read it later. Don't do it now, but you could read it later. It's in 2 Kings 16 uh, specifically. He was such an evil king, in fact, that he was willing to sacrifice his own son uh, in order to worship the pagan gods. And so he had really strayed far uh, from, from God and from serving him. And at this time, Israel and Syria actually joined forces together and they attacked Judah. They want to fight Judah. They want to take over the land of Judah. And they do some great damage to Judah, but Judah's not fully defeated. It doesn't work uh, completely. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah, the prophet, is called by God to go and to speak to King Ahaz and to give him a message. And it actually isn't a horrible message. And so in Isaiah 7, verse 7 through 9, it says, it says Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And so there's actually a prophecy here from Isaiah to the king of Judah saying, continue to trust in the Lord. God will take care of this. He will not let defeat come your way. And there is a promise here of this. Yet, we see that King Ahaz does not listen to Isaiah. And what King Ahaz does instead is he goes over to Assyria and he aligns Judah with Assyria. And he says, we need help. And so he goes to this powerhouse of Assyria and says, we will come under you if you will protect us, if you will take care of us from our enemies. And so King Ahaz actually takes the silver and gold that is in the house of God 
and he gives it to the Assyrian king as a tribute. And when he is in Assyria and he's going to take this, this uh, gift to the Assyrian king, he actually sees the altar that the Assyrian king worships the Assyrian god at, and he loves it so much that he sends word back to his priests and says, I need you to build for me this exact altar. And they do that. And so then you have the king of Judah sacrificing on an altar just like the Assyrian king does. And so we see again how King Ahaz here is not following the will of the Lord. He is not honoring God. And so as a result of this, Isaiah is given another prophecy to share with the king. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, we do not have a pretty picture for the people of Judah. Not a pretty picture at all. And I want to read for you out of uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 22. They might be on the screen. They might not. I don't know. But it should be right there where you're turned to in your Bible, just one chapter earlier. And I want to read this because I want you to see the dire position that the people of God are in. It says, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, in all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel." Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to, te to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a horrible word to hear for the king. Now, I don't know what, how much he put into it. He doesn't seem to care much of what Isaiah has to say. But what Isaiah has to say to him is not good. Saying to him, listen, there's gonna be distress, there's gonna be darkness, there's gonna be no hope for you and your people because you have turned and you have went to the king of Assyria and what's gonna happen is Assyria is actually gonna take you over. They're gonna dominate you and they are gonna conquer you. 
Be ready, it says, for the river. The river is gonna come, and he's talking about Assyria, and it's gonna flood all of your banks. It's gonna take you up to the neck. And so we have great distress. We, we have what seems to be no hope for these people. But yet it's in the midst of this situation that we then be start to read from Isaiah chapter nine of the passage I've already read, which we read every Christmas season to share the hope that we have in Christ. It's pretty fascinating. And so follow along with me. I'm just gonna take it one verse at a time in chapter nine. We're just gonna go one through seven. I want you to see this, this prophecy that Isaiah gives after such a grim and dark one. He says, but there will be no, no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah speaks of this glorious day in verse one. And after the last two chapters of such bleakness, all of a sudden we get this word glorious day coming. And Isaiah speaks of it as if it's already happened, it seems. Promising this glorious day that is going to come. He says, at one time there was contempt in the land, but this will be no more. And in the second part of that verse, it speaks of a day when the nations will be multiplied. It talks about the stretching of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Talking about this time when there will be a multitude of people being a part of this nation. And what it, what it should do for us is it should make us think back to the promise that God made with Abraham saying that he was gonna be a, a nation that is blessed, that has many, many, many children within it, uh, more than could be counted. And that's what, I, that's what Isaiah here is prophesying, that this is how it's going to happen, it's gonna take place, there's gonna to be too many children to count. He says this promise remains, this promise is, is coming. And so when you come off such, such a horrible situation, and in this first verse of chapter nine, all of a sudden we have this bright future being talked about as if it's happening currently, the question is, is Israel, is Judah here going to hear this and are they gonna find hope in it or instead are they gonna look at their situation and find no hope? Alex Moitier, he writes in his, uh, in his commentary on Isaiah, he says, as always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? You see, before I go on this morning with the rest of this chapter, I think we're faced with this same question. Are we as individuals, are we as a church going to sit and look at the bleakness and the darkness of the situations that we find ourselves in. You know, we can talk all we want about society and culture, and you're right, it doesn't seem like it's on an upward trend when it comes to morality, when it comes to honoring God. And it's easy for us to sit and to look at those things and to see how bleak it is. For you as an individual, I have no doubt some of you in your life are facing bleak and difficult times. Right, you look around and Everything always seems to be bad news. Everything seems to be a struggle. 
And you just wonder, why am I so caught up in this? Why is this happening? And maybe you've even gotten to the point in your life currently where you would ask the question, God, where in the world are you? Where are you? I don't see you present. It seems in anything. When I turn on the news, it's always opposite of what I think you would want. In my own life, there's always struggles and hurt and doctor's appointments and and bad news there and da-da-da-da-da. We can go on and on and on with the bleakness of life. But we sit here faced with the exact same question that the Israelites and and that Judah is faced with here. Are we going to look at all of the negativity, the darkness, and the bleakness of our current situation and sit in that and just say, God, what is going on? Where are you? Or are we gonna look upon the promises that God has provided for us, put our hope and our rest in those, and live a life faithful to God, even in the midst of hurt and darkness? I can't answer that question for you. That's something that you have to decide. That's something that you have to live with. And I would say it has to be, can only be done through the help of God and God working in your life. But what decision will you make this morning? As we continue on in these verses, these are good verses. They're verses of hope and they're verses of peace. But if you listen to this this morning and then you leave out these doors and you go out into the world and you just have this this, uh, way about you that says, woe is me. You know, we could start calling you Eeyore. Then what good are you doing? Are you really trusting in the promises and in the hope of God? Are you really living in those? Because I can be pretty confident that your situation's probably, for most of us, not as bad as Judah's. Not as bad as the people of Judah. Their king, who's supposed to be honoring God, is sacrificing his own children on pagan altars. That's what's happening in their land. That's the religion they're facing. I don't think many of us are facing that. And here Isaiah is telling them of good news. And we have to say, are we going to trust in this promise and find our hope and our peace in it? Or are we instead gonna look to ourselves and to the things of this world? Because if we wanna look to ourselves and the things of this world, then I would agree with you, it should be pretty dark. And you should walk around like Eeyore. You should walk around pretty sad because there is no hope to be found in this world in and of itself. Isaiah goes on, verse two. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we see here in verse two, a light that overcomes the dark. Isaiah shows, what's he showing here? He's showing the mighty hand of God doing exactly what the people cannot do. The people of Judah are lost. They're in darkness. They're in such despair. They're not able to bring light about by themselves. They've tried and it's not working yet. All of a sudden, a bright light shows. We know that this is only a work from God. He's alone is the one who can do this. He's the one who comes to them and does the deed that they've been waiting for which they would want to do, but they simply know they cannot do. And what a relief this must be, this must be to finally be able to see in the dark. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation when it was dark and you didn't know where you were, but it's very comforting to all of a sudden have a light, and whatever it might be. I remember one, one day it was when our oldest son just started to 
drive. You know, he was out, one of his first times out. I'm like, you know what? He's gonna be out late, I can't remember why. He said, I'll, I'll stay up on the couch. Well, that didn't work too well for me. I fell asleep on the couch, is what happened. Well, when he came in, I didn't know what was going on. I must have been in some deep sleep. I was so confused. I got off the couch and right into the wall. I mean, I smacked it so hard. I was on the ground in the, in the hallway going, oh, my toe. I mean, it was hurting so bad. I broke my toe. Nobody cared. Nobody woke up in the house. It was dark. And even in a place that I know very well, I should be able to navigate the hallways of my own home. But the darkness and there was just confusion caused injury, right? Caused pain. Maybe you've been like that before. And having the light switch all of a sudden flipped on, it's like, okay, I can get my bearing. I know what's happening here. There's comfort here. Well, we think of this in the sense of our life, of being in the darkness. Maybe you've worked in a place and you just always felt like you were left in the dark at work. There were things happening behind the scene, but you just weren't a part of it. You're just wondering, why am I not a part of this? Can somebody just shed some light on this situation so that I can know what's happening? Or am I about to be kicked out? I, I'm not sure. It's an uncomfortable place to be. And here, Israel, Judah, in the dark, not knowing what's going on. And here, Isaiah is promising them a light is coming. And it's gonna overcome the darkness. And you're gonna be able to see perfectly this deep darkness that dwells on the land. Listen, a light has shown. A light has come. And again, it's not a light that they can produce on their own. It's a light that has been promised to them by God, and it's a light that only God can do himself and give them. So as we go on to verse three, because of this light, it says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil here we see the joy of a multiplied nation in verse three. This once sad nation, the prophecy tells them, you're gonna be overtook. Your people are going to die. This great nation's not gonna be much longer. So there is no joy, there is no hope. And here out of this though, Isaiah says, no, our nation will be multiplied. There's going to be an increase of joy. There's gonna be an increase of people. Right? There's going to be rejoicing because of what's happening and what's taking place. And so you picture a city that is war-torn, and all of a sudden what you have instead is you have streets that are filled with rejoicing, streets that are filled with singing and parades happening and taking place because of the joy that is taking place. This is, this is the promise that Isaiah is saying is coming because of the light that shines in the darkness. Or maybe you've drove through Michigan or through Ohio and you see those old towns. Isn't some of them old towns so sad? They're so bleak. And you can picture maybe back in the day, it's like, man, I bet back in the day this was a good spot to be, a good spot to live. Look at these buildings. Oh, it must have been so fantastic. But now you drive through and it's like, well, everything's boarded up. Things are for sale. Nothing is happening. Nothing is going on. But what God has promised Israel is it's not gonna be a town like that anymore. A town that was once dying, it's gonna be bustling. It's gonna be brimming with pride. God will bring all the people together, the remnant of Israel the Gentile believers of the nations, right? The mul multiplied the nations. Here they come. They're gonna be together and there's going to be great joy. Verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, 
you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse four promises freedom. Freedom to a people who have no freedom. Their king has given their freedom away to the Assyrian army, to the Assyrian king. Now they must do what he says. They're gonna have to follow what he wants. And so to a people who have no freedom, all of a sudden you start talking freedom, that's something they're interested in. That's something that they want to hear. So in verse four, Isaiah talks about the freedom and he, he references Midian. This might recall your memory of the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon's in Judges chapter six through eight. And, and remember, Midian is coming in on Israel and God brings up Gideon to fight and to free Israel. But you might recall how God did this. God proved himself to Israel through Gideon, not because of the might and the power of Gideon, but because of the might and the power of God. If you remember the story, Gideon had all kinds of people with him, and God said, no, too many, too many people. Keeps whittling the people down, whittling the people down, which had to be horrifying for Gideon, to the point to where there's only 300 men. There's 300 men, and they're, they're looking upon an army that they have to fight that just seems so vast and so big. But God is wanting to prove himself to his people. He's wanting to prove his power and his might and the story of Gideon to the people. And so God then takes Gideon and his army of 300 men and he gives them torches and he gives them trumpets, which is not what I take into battle. I want a bazooka and grenades and things that blow up. And God says, no, you get torches and you get trumpets and I want you to go down there and blow those things and wave those things around and watch what happens. And because of the might and the power of God, what happens is they destroy the army of Midian. Midian starts turning on itself. They're so scared because they heard about this Gideon and his God, and they're scared, and they're being attacked, and God wins the day for Israel. Freedom is given back to Israel. Why? Because God vanquished the oppressor. He broke it. And that's what we see him for. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it. What hope given to a people who only understand the rod of oppression? That's what, that's what Judah is at this time. They, they completely understand what oppression is. But yet the prophecy that Isaiah is given is, listen, God has broken that rod of oppression. It is no more. And so you get to verse five. It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What we see happening here in verse five, what Isaiah is talking about is he's talking about a complete victory. God's people will no longer need boots to be warriors. They will no longer need to wear their garments that have blood on it because they're going into battle and fighting these battles. What's happening here is, is he's saying, victory is so complete. The rod of the oppressor has been broken so fully that you can take your boots, that you can take your garments as a warrior, and we're gonna put them in the fire. That's all they're good for now. We don't need it anymore. We don't need to wear these things because God has given us complete victory complete and final. He's gonna fight for them and they then will reap the reward, right? I don't know if we always think about this, but God is fighting, we are reaping. 
It's not we are fighting and God is getting blessed because of the work we're doing, which I think is sometimes what we think. No, God is fighting. We are reaping. I think of it kind of like the pool at my house. I do all the work. My family reaps all the rewards, right? I do it all. They enjoy the swimming, right? That's what's happening here. We don't fight. He fights, but we get the reward. So now you can kind of picture hearing this prophecy. And there has to be great excitement and hope that this prophecy is is true and that it's going to come. And there's probably a, a hope saying, let it happen now. Now, let me remind you, this was written roughly 700 years before Christ. So the fulfillment of the prophecy is a ways off. Because as these people are sitting there listening, it's like, yes, I'm excited for this. Come on, come on, come on. Tell me, tell me what's next. We get to verse six, which we read all the time again at Christmas. But for these people, I wonder what they must have thought. All this hope, all this victory. And here's the promise. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I just don't know how much comfort I would find from all these promises being given to me and then them being laid on a baby. But that's the promise. For unto you a a child is born. For unto you a a son is given. And we need to notice the importance of how this is worded and what is said. Because it says a child, a baby being born, that makes us think of humanity, that makes us think of of, of frailty, but it makes us think of a a mother and and a father, human. But it doesn't just say a child is born. It says a son is, is given. So we have this gift being given by God that is, a, that is a son. And so here we already see the, the beautifulness of what we have in Christ of being fully man. A child is born. But fully God. A son is, is given to you. And so again, we see the work of God in this, in giving the son. Uh, This isn't a work that you and I can do. This isn't a work that man can do. This is only the work that God does. Is the baby gonna be a boy or a girl? God's gonna figure that out. That's God's design. That's God's plan. But this also should help us to think back again. You remember I already mentioned the covenant with Abraham. Well, another covenant should come to our mind. We see the importance of a son being given, a child. We should start thinking about David covenant that God made with David, that it was through David's lineage that God would would save Israel, that the true king would come. And again, in order for that true king to come, a child would need to be born, but it would need to be a son. A son would need to be given. And the promise that Isaiah is giving here is saying that is going to happen, that through this child, through through this son, God will rule and he will reign forever. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And then he says his name. So this government on the, on the shoulders of this, of this child, of this, of this son, and it's going to have a perfect rule. So I want to pause there because 
I think about this, I think about this quite a bit. <clears throat> do, you often, do you often think about, maybe you wonder, what is the perfect system for nations? You know, what is it? You see different ones all over the place, and you, you hear a lot of them talked about today. Democracies, republics, communism, socialism. Uh, should you just have kingdoms? Right, we, we go on and on and on. And we can talk a lot about this. But the problem is, as you take each of those things, they all, they all break down at some point. You start to find problems within all of these systems to govern and to rule over people. And the breakdown always comes because of sinful people. Always. It always comes down to sinful people as the result of the breakdown. But the Bible actually gives us the perfect system that is needed to run and govern a people. Did you know that? It is given in there. It's not a, there's no question about it. And it's God being the king over us. That's it. No senators, uh, no, no, no parties, no any of that. It's you need a king. But you don't need some earthly king because they're sinners. And they mess everything up. They get greedy. And it messes everything up. What you need is you need a king. And you need a king with these titles. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. And prince of peace. You see, that can't be found around our land. There's no man, there's no woman who could step up and fulfill this role. You see, we're like people in the darkness trying to find a leader to take us somewhere. And what we need is we need the light to show us the way. And what Isaiah is prophesying here is, hey, the light has come in the darkness. And it's come as a child and a son that has been given. And on him will the government be. It's on his shoulders. He will break the rod of the oppressor. Well, what is the rod of the oppressor? What is the oppressing thing that I so need? Is it, is it some other country that's making me feel bad? Is it my neighbor who keeps getting on my case? Is it my parents who don't seem to care about me and love me like I think they should? What is it that is oppressing us that needs to be broken? Well, it's sin. It's your sin. It's the fact that you're separated from God because of your sin. And you don't have a way to reconcile that. You don't have a way to, to fix that because there is no gift that you can give to make it worthy. Nothing. And so you as an individual are lost in the darkness saying, what in the world do I do? I, I don't even have a flashlight on me. I don't know how to start a fire. I can do nothing within myself to make light to see the way out of this mess I find myself in. But that's why Isaiah 9 is so important. And there's so much hope filled into it. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Jesus, who we celebrate his birth during this Christmas, we have the ruler that is perfect. 
And we see the names that have been given to him by God himself, wonderful counselor. This means supernatural counseling. It's, it should make you think kind of, of of King Solomon. When Solomon was asked by God anything, what do you want, anything? I'll give it to you. And he asked for what? He asked for wisdom. And there seems to be a supernatural wisdom given to, to King Solomon so that he could be wise in the land. And that's what's happening here. It's a, the words there, it's a, it's a supernatural counseling that can only be done by this one. But then the name Mighty God, of course, Isaiah is pointing here to his divinity. It's the same phrase used in Isaiah 10, 21, and you can see it uh, in there. He says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. It's the same phrase. There's no doubt that Isaiah meant mighty God, fully divine, perfect because of that. Then also everlasting father. The picture we have of this child being born, this king that we have been given is yes, he can counsel us. Yes, mighty God, all these mighty acts. But this, this supremeness also comes down to a loving father figure who cares for you, who loves you, right? Who would get down and, and grip you and hold on to you, tell good things to you. That's, that's what a good father does. And that's the promise that we have here Oh, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be the mighty God, but also an everlasting father to you. And to take it even further, the prince of peace. Now, this really would bring two meanings to our mind and to their mind. Number one, no more war. No more war. No more, no more struggling with that. No more seeing people die. No more sending your kids off to some foreign land. Or no more looking out your window and seeing things explode. We don't, that's not going to happen anymore because of this one. But also there's another meaning behind this Prince of Peace, of a personal peace. Think about what would it take? What would it take for you to honestly have peace in your life? Think about what, what that might look like, what that might be. You might be able to rattle a list off. Uh, I would need money. I need good kids. I need a wife who loves me unconditionally and never does anything wrong. I need good friends who are there at my whim at every second to do whatever I want and they're right on board and they love doing it, right? I need security, I need to feel fulfilled in every avenue of things that I do. Then I will, have, I will have peace. Doesn't that sound good? It's something we can't even imagine. You and I can't even imagine what it feels like to have complete 100% peace in this world. And the reason oftentimes is because of how clouded our mind is with the sins of this world. But what we're being promised here in this child is a prince of peace, a life completely fulfilled in him, a hope that rests fully in him, free from anxieties of this world, free, free from the fear of the unknown, because now we have the known, the child that has been born, the son that has been given. He is our king. 
And so in verse seven, it ends by saying, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We have the promise from Isaiah here in this prophecy that this king will be perfect, fully God, fully man, and that he will reign forever. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will never be an end. This child sits on the throne of David and he sits above all other kings, above all other rulers and leaders and authorities. His kingdom has been established forever, but in perfection, in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness. This child that's being prophesied is the answer to all of man's problems. Everything is wrapped up in this baby. It's in this baby that we find our savior. It's when we find our king. I hope that you feel the pull to a king like that. It's just something that we, I think we struggle fathoming it because we just don't see that. Perfect ruling, perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Though we have never seen it, it's something we should yearn for and long for. It's something that we should desire. And it's something that has been given to us in Christ. You see, in Jesus, we have our perfect king. In Matthew chapter 11, Verses 25 through 30. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, in this perfect king, we have the burden bearer. You see, leaders don't talk this way today because they can't. Leaders today say, come join my team, and we together will accomplish victory. And you'll be given a task to do. And that leader will look to you and say, are you doing your task? Because if you're not doing your task, then we cannot achieve victory. See, that's what, a, that's what a good coach will do. They'll get everybody to do their part. Come on, do your part. If you don't do your part, you're setting your teammate up for failure. So go and do your part. You see, what we have in Christ isn't come here and do your part. It's come here and give me all your burdens because I've, I've covered them all for you. Your part is faith. Part is just trusting. I've done it. I've accomplished it. He alone is the burden bearer. But not just that, we see in Hebrews chapter one, verse eight through nine, it says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is the righteous ruler. The righteous ruler that was promised in Isaiah has come 
through Christ, as we see here in Hebrews, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Or how about in Hebrews chapter two, verse, verse uh, 14 to 18, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus doesn't come just as some king who was born into some rich family, who had a lineage where he's gonna be the king because his dad was the king. Now, Jesus actually came and proved himself as well by coming to this earth just like you and I, fully man, every temptation, every sickness, all these things thrown his way, yet he conquered them all. And he did this so that he could be our perfect high priest, to sympathize with us, to care for us, but even more importantly, to destroy the enemy that we just can't get past. He's done that for us. Or then we see uh, in, in Revelation chapter one, as was read this morning, verse 17 to 18, Pastor Scott read this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. In Christ, we have the conqueror of death. Can you conquer death? Have you ever known of anyone to be able to conquer death? I don't. But we do have one in Jesus. They killed him, but yet he came back alive. Why? Because death could not hold him. He didn't deserve death. There was no sin found in him. And the great gift that he has given us is that he has given us his righteousness so that we too can conquer death. You know, this week our church lost a beloved member in Miss Loretta Cosby. She passed away at a very old age. She lived a very long life and a, and a good life and a very faithful life to the Lord. But in all the goodness of Miss Loretta, there was just a fact. She still had sin in her life at some time and because of that sin, she had to pass. But her faith was in a savior and in a Lord who says, but I have the keys of death and Hades. And if you are mine, they're your keys too. And so while there's sadness and there's hurt and death, we know that our king is the conqueror of it and it does not hold us. And so we have those great verses in 1 Corinthians 15 that our victory comes through death because our king has conquered it in our place. Well, then lastly, in John 14, verse 25 through 27, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
Jesus knowing he's about to leave, he's about to be crucified, he's gonna go away, he's gonna ascend on high. He says, listen, I'm gonna give you a helper. But he says, remember all of the things that I've taught you. The helper is gonna come to help you to remember all of the promises, to help you to remember all these things. And the reason isn't so that you can be so smart. The reason even isn't even so that you can conquer the difficulties of this world and, and achieve greatness for Jesus, no. What is it for? So that you can have peace. Peace I give to you. Peace I am leaving with you. This is what Christ wants for his people. He says, I am the Prince of Peace. You need to live in peace. Oh, this world's gonna throw you all sort of ways. Oh, this world is gonna crush you. It's gonna lie to you. It's gonna steal from you. It's gonna tell you all sorts of things. But listen, I don't give you peace like this world gives you because this world just gives you peace that's like sand. It just goes right through your fingers back onto the ground. And you gotta keep going after it and keep picking it up again and again. It's not really there. Jesus says, I give you peace that's everlasting. Remember my promises. Remember the question I asked you at the very beginning. Are we gonna look at the bleakness of the situations we find ourselves in? Or are we going to look to the promises and the hope that Christ provides for us and hold on to them? You see, I'm sure many of you as believers here this morning would agree with me and say, Lord Jesus, please come now. I don't see how it can get much worse. Lord Jesus, please come now. But I would have to think the people who listen to this prophecy of Isaiah would say, let the child be born now. But they still had to wait 700 years. I don't know when Christ is gonna return. I would hope this afternoon, I would hope this moment. But I don't know, it could be 700 years. It could be 7,000 years. It does not change the hope and the promises that Christ has given us. And it does not change the fact that he has provided for us peace that can only be found in him. I hope you know that peace. I hope that you experience that peace day in and day out in the life-giving grace that God has provided through his son, Jesus. If not, you can. The Bible says if you will call on his name, if you will call on his name and believe in Christ that you can be saved. And that's not a lie. That's not a joke. Trusting in the promises of what Christ has done for you in your place is what it means to believe. And I hope that you'll think about that. I hope that you'll ponder that. I hope that you will trust in Christ. And for those of us who have, let us rest in his promises, the only source of peace that we have. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for the peace that is found in you. God, we ask that you would forgive us. I ask that you would forgive me because I know this happens in my life quite often. When I seek peace, in the things of this world. God, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this world. There's nothing wrong with working hard. I, I, in fact, I would say you tell us to do that as Christians. There's nothing wrong with having a savings account. There's nothing wrong with any of those sorts of things. But God, I pray that you would help us to make sure in our life that where our hope is found, 
where our peace is secured is not in any of these things in the world, but that it's in you and you alone. God, the things of this world can vanish at any second, but you have promised us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that your word cannot be changed. And so God, I pray that this Christmas season and this morning, you would grip our hearts to your promises, that we would find hope in your word, that we would find peace in who Christ is, that that would give us joy, that that would give us satisfaction, that that would give us complete fulfillment. And God, in those areas where we struggle, help us to see that. Help us to root out sin in our life. Help us to grow more in the image of your son day in and day out. God, help us to remember that grace that you have provided. The light and the darkness that we simply could not do on our own in any way. You have done it for us. And so God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you would put these words into the mind of Isaiah. 700 and some years before Jesus would ever step on this earth. God, we see how your whole word fits together. Every single word, every single page, how it's all needed and necessary. And God, we thank you that you've given us your word to know, to study. And so God, I pray that you would use it in our hearts now. Speak, help us to respond to you how we should as we sing this song and worship to you. I pray also that we would follow your plan and your will as we do that. God, be with us now, we ask in Christ's name, amen.